From Wall Street to Main Street, there are stories to be told. Where knowledge learned on the street is as powerful as knowledge learned on the streets. This is the Financial Recon Podcast, where we introduce you to the people, places, and things that have helped shape our environment and will help shape yours. Welcome to the conversation. Happy Independence Week. This is Mike Molotaris. Every year, I love celebrating the 4th of July. And one main reason for that is the pomp and ceremony that comes with it. But the other is the historical retrospective that takes place. 1776, Philadelphia, Washington, Adams, Hamilton. We all know the names and imagery and the love showered upon our founding fathers. But what if? What if we don't like our historical figures? In this discussion, I'm joined by Dr. Lindsay Shravinsky, author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of the American Institution, where we examine the role biases play in evaluating our historical figures, as well as how they can influence our relationship with money. Let's join the conversation. Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky, thank you so much for joining us on short notice on the Financial Recon Podcast. I'm just stoked that you're here because with the 4th of July and, you know, Americana firing up for the weekend, your newsletter, The Imperfect Union, really struck a tone with me. And I'm thankful that you could uh, be here with us. Sure. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. For those of you who have not got a chance to check it out, the title of it is, Do We Need to Like the Historical Figures We Study? And how can we be transparent about our human biases? And Lindsay's specialty is around the cabinet and George Washington and so forth. And it really got me thinking because in the financial area, we always have a lot of biases we're always dealing with, you know, for people's um, financial planning and so forth. And so I was just hoping you could tell us a little bit about like, do we need to like our historical subjects? Uh, So the short answer is no, we don't. I mean, it helps if you find them entertaining in some way or another, because if you're doing history right, you're probably going to spend quite some time with each person that you write about, um, sometimes several years. So if there's nothing that you like about them or nothing that you find entertaining, those years will be a real slog. And writing a book is hard enough without having to add that additional sort of obstacle in in your way. But you don't have to think that they're good people. You can think that they're really influential and you want to understand where their influence comes from. You can think that they are a pretty terrible person and that can be sort of equally fascinating in a different way. Um, Or you can try and really appreciate their complexity because that, of course, is sort of the center of the human condition. But the reason I actually was prompted to write this was there was a book review in the Wall Street Journal where a very esteemed uh, early Americanist said that he was surprised that another esteemed early Americanist, both Pulitzer Prize winners, had accepted, basically had accepted a job at the University of Virginia and was a Thomas Jefferson chair if he didn't like Thomas Jefferson, which to me, A, shows a reflection of not understanding, first of all, how the job market works, because if it's a good job, who the heck cares what the name (laughs) of the chair is, right? Right. Um, But I think additionally is problematic because the idea that you have to like someone is setting up an inherent 
inability to do your job well. So that's really where this whole thing started. Okay. We all have these biases in whatever we're doing. I guess like when you're writing and evaluating these folks, how do you know what your biases are? You know, like how do you know they're taking over, I guess, is um, where I'm going with this. Sure. Well, it's it's a challenge because there are biases that we really, really know about. And there are <laughs> ones that maybe are a little bit more ingrained and are a little bit more subtle. So, you know, I, for example, have a tendency to dislike historical figures who are out and out misogynists because it annoys me as a, a highly educated woman who does a lot of intellectual work. I find that very frustrating. Um, that doesn't mean that I can't write about them. And that doesn't mean that I can't do my best to assess them honestly. But I do have to be really careful when I am writing about them, especially when I'm writing about their interactions with women. Am I allowing my feelings to color the language that I'm using? Am I allowing my feelings to color my judgment about their role in a certain situation? And I think that that is a constant process. So the example that I use most frequently is Thomas Jefferson. I will be very candid that I tend to like John Adams better than I like Thomas Jefferson. Um, you know, they were both incredibly flawed human beings, but I find John Adams' flaws to be sort of hilarious and endearing, whereas I find Thomas Jefferson's to be befuddling and frustrating. Is that fair? No. Is that subjective? 100%. But that's how I feel. And so the challenge for me is when I'm writing about Thomas Jefferson to think about um, my language choices. So when I accuse him of being duplicitous about something, am I basing that in evidence or am I basing that in my feelings? Sometimes he was duplicitous and that word is an accurate reflection of the situation. Sometimes maybe it's not clear and I need to choose a more neutral word. So I think it's a ongoing process of querying yourself about how you feel about people and events and things. And if you have a gut reaction about something, sit for a minute about why you have that gut reaction. It's almost like the uh, tweet Adam Grant put out, you know, that Twitter is a way to capture your live feelings. And so before you hit send, you want to sit and think about it for a little bit. Because it's, you know, a permanent, <laughs> it, yeah. it, it's a permanent postcard kind of. Well, you know, I think it, I think it really depends how you approach social media. So I was raised in a generation that was pretty technologically native. And I learned early on that anything you put online is online and people mm -hmm. can see it and people you don't expect to see it can see it. And so I think that is a really important lesson and I've been, you know, I, I learned the hard way that I put something up online that I wish I hadn't. And in an interview at a later point, uh, someone brought it up and it was very awkward. And you only need to learn that lesson once. And so I definitely do not approach Twitter as a diary. Twitter is a very small segment <laughs> of my life and a very small segment of my thoughts. Um, and I think that that's probably as it should be. But that offers a really important historical lesson as well. So when we look at the letters and the documents left over from historical figures, what's left, especially if they had time, if they didn't die suddenly and they had time to curate their records like the Adamses or the Jefferson family or, 
you know, any sort of family that was really attuned to legacy, they left us what they wanted to leave us. And they burned what they didn't want us to see. So the best example, of course, is that Martha Washington burned almost all of her and George's correspondence. And if I was a Betty, yeah, and he asked her to. And if I was a betting woman, I would say it was because that's where all the dirt was. That's where the juicy gossip and his sarcasm and his anger and his grudges and all of those things would have been most on display. And he didn't want those things tarnishing his legacy or his reputation. And so we don't know what was in those letters. And and so that leads me to the question of with like Washington, the founding fathers per se, do we, is it more of, um, you know, an anchoring mechanism that people got that piece of information because obviously there was a, the information train was the information uh, pigeon carrier at the time. It's like the old telephone game, you know, one person shares a thing and so forth and so forth. But for the most part, it's like, Hey, this George Washington guy, he's a good guy. And that's, that anchoring has led people to um, carry on for throughout history that he was a certain way. Do you think that, like you're saying, plays a part in some of this? It certainly plays a part. I think there are a couple of things to blame for some of the myths and legends that we hold dear. The first is that the first generation of books that were published, they were not published by professionals. So, you know, the Mason Weems cherry tree story was published to sell books because he knew it would be an interesting ploy there was wait a minute wait that's not true no No. (laughs) (laughs) oh you totally got me totally got me i'm so gullible so gullible no Um, just just having fun (laughs) (laughs) so you know i mean it, it was like totally a sales ploy um and then even john marshall's multi-volume biography was very politically motivated because there wasn't a sense of professional historians that didn't exist until much later so a lot of but then the next generation of historians often pulled from those early volumes so there have been many many generations of sort of faulty information that was passed along and and sometimes it was their fault but sometimes it wasn't because today we have all of their letters in one nice little handy place at the time they were scattered all over north america and so of course it would be much more difficult to pull together all of that correspondence I just wanted to ask, like, and as a researcher, what is it like sifting through all of this information? Well, I think the important thing for most people to know is that you actually very rarely, well, it depends what documents you're dealing with. But if you're talking about presidential letters, you very rarely get to actually see the presidential letters because most of them are on microfilm and then are digitized or published. And that is, of course, to preserve those things. They don't want mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of hands running over <laughs> letters, or they will literally disintegrate. But it is a, um, I have the very lovely benefit of having all of these thousands and thousands of letters. But the flip side of that is I have thousands and thousands of letters. And so you are dealing with so much information in a way that you wouldn't if you're talking about a figure that is not as represented in the archive. So there's a plus and a minus to that. The second piece of why these founder stories, I think, have sort of carried us along for so such a long time 
is that it was a safe history. So as our nation has gone through periods of turmoil and strife and political tensions in the 1820s and the 1850s and the 1860s and the 1890s, Mm -hmm. everyone could agree on the founders. So it didn't matter if you were a former Confederate or you were a former Union person. This was a safe history that everyone could agree on. So when we see these moments of uptick of focus again on the founding fathers and that sort of history, usually there is a parallel to what is going on in the country. And there's an explanation for that. I think most recently, one of our challenges is people tend to conflate criticism or accurate history of the founding generation as an attack on their personal identity. I don't totally understand why, because that's not what I mean. So for example, uh, one branch of my family came over on the second ship that came to Jamestown to uh, provide supplies for the people who are already there. They owned enslaved individuals. They moved along the South. They moved to Texas. Do I agree with those choices? No, of course not. Does it bother me to say that that was the case? No, and it shouldn't because they're long dead and they don't care. And so I shouldn't care either and should be able to tell the full story. Mm-hmm. It's like in financial psychology, we all have a money story. And it's kind of like you can't get to where you're going unless you know where you've been. And so just reckon, like accepting this is what it is and... You know, you learn from it and kind of go on. One of the things in your newsletter that you asked this great question, and I actually wanted to answer it here. Which historical figures are you biased toward or against? And so I was thinking about this, and I was like trying to, you know, keep it within my lifetime. And the one that I came up with was George W. Bush. And I... I say that because, and I, I've said this to my wife, I think it has to do with George W. Bush. There's, you know, people view him in two different lights. And there's really, you really, or I shouldn't say two different. They view him in one light in the sense of, you know, his final days in office being just abysmal and everyone was ready for President Obama to come in and everything. But, his first part of that presidency, for the most part, you know, he was he was that wartime president, and he had he galvanized the nation. You know, he led us through nine eleven, but then with the second part, it took over his presidency and defined it: the Iraq War and so forth, and the economic implosion and so so forth. So that was what I came up with. Kind of curious to hear what your thoughts are. Well, I think that's a really great example of why it's really dangerous to write history so close to the events, because Mm -hmm. often we have incomplete information. So a lot of the records are still classified. So we don't necessarily even have a full story of what has happened. And there have been a lot of presidents, for example, President Eisenhower, who once the full record was made public people's estimation of him went up significantly because he actually was much more invested and involved in the events during his administration. And people had thought he was sort of old and daughtery. Mm -hmm. The second piece of that is it is really hard to separate the emotion in the moment from a historical assessment. So I 
while I write a lot of op-eds and that kind of thing, I would not try and write a history of the previous administration because I know that I cannot separate my emotion from what happened to accurately assess what is happening. Partly that's because we just still have incomplete information, but also because I still have so many feelings about it. And so I think that's, um, you know, you can write sort of first takes, you can write first attempts, you can write, of course, there should be journalism, but there should also be an expectation and an understanding that as time goes on, we will have a much better sense of their legacy and their impact and how we should feel about them. And so I think that that's one of those things where, you know, the C-SPAN presidential rankings came out <laughs> yesterday, and it's always really interesting to see, especially figures like George W. Bush or Bill Clinton, who have been out of office for a bit but are still you know, in our public memory, how their numbers are shifting. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right, because I was in the military. I was actually at Offutt Air Force Base, the last place President Bush was before he came back to D.C., and I will tell you, there's a lot that still hasn't come out about all that stuff. And and I've always said that in discussions with folks, I'm like, you have to wait and see as things come, come to the table. So I know with Washington's cabinet, why do you think we have the hardest time accepting the bad with the good? Well, especially when we have figures that are opposed to each other. We have a sort of a human tendency to take sides mm-hmm. and to try and diminish the negatives on our side and blow up the positives and then vice versa on our opposing side. And with Washington's cabinet in particular, there are very clearly defined sides between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson in um, a way that has been, you know, incredible fodder for art and music and oh don't worry we have an obligatory (laughs) hamilton question coming excellent (laughs) wonderful can't wait um so you know i think that that sort of plays into human nature of Mm -hmm. let's pick a side or who do we find most appealing and let's argue against the other side with washington i think that you know um I often discuss whether or not humans are capable of holding two complex thoughts in their head at the same time. And I would really like to believe that we are. So it is both true that Washington owned hundreds of people and could be incredibly cruel and continued to be so until he died. And also that he was the first president and he was an essential part of the nation's founding and he was indispensable and he did extraordinary things in that way. Both of those are true. They don't cancel each other out. We are not Excel spreadsheets as humans. Like, that is not how humanity works. I would like to think that we are sophisticated enough to be able to hold both of those thoughts in our heads. And I think that's really where the the rub comes down is people feel like they have to choose one or the other, or they have to somehow balance each other out. And I think that's a mistake to try and do that. With his cabinet, what was the dynamic like amongst Adams and Hamilton and so forth? Like, was it anything like portrayals we see in popular, you know, entertainment or? Well, so for starters, Adams never attended a cabinet meeting. He was never oh. welcome um, into that space. So that really started the tradition of vice presidents being on the outside. That being said, um, the 
portrayal for Hamilton fans, the portrayal of the very intense bickering in the cabinet was accurate. Um, the first cabinet battle, if you if you really know the songs, the first cabinet rap battle, that actually happened via letters because Washington wasn't convening cabinet meetings at that point. He didn't convene a cabinet meeting until November 26th, 1791, which was two and a half years into his administration. Once he did start meeting with the cabinet, um, Jefferson and Hamilton disagreed with each other on pretty much everything. And they were also diametrically opposed in like pretty much every single way that they viewed the world and presented themselves. So even things like how they interpreted masculinity, how they dressed, what sort of behavior they thought was appropriate, which foreign nation they thought should be the closest ally, you name it, they disagreed on it. So there's that as a background. Then they also had incredibly different communication styles. So Hamilton was very bombastic, intended to sort of pepper you with information, and Jefferson hated face-to-face conflict. So he much preferred to sort of do things behind the scenes. Then if you add the actual physical environment, so Washington typically held cabinet meetings in his private study, which was about 15 by 21 feet, and by 21st century standards would have been like a hoarder's room. It had so much furniture in it. It was, so it was not particularly big. It had tons (laughs) of furniture. There was, most of the meetings actually took place in the summer in Philadelphia with no air conditioning. And there would have been five pretty large men in that space. So you can imagine that it was kind of like the worst possible conditions for a meeting that you really didn't want to be in. And the meetings would often last for several hours So it was really kind of like a hothouse for political tensions. And Hamilton didn't know when to stop talking. So he regularly would speak uninterrupted for 45 minutes, which Jefferson noted in his documents. Um, So it would have been terrible. I would have not wanted to have been in those meetings. I would like to be a fly on the wall like once to see it. But it would have been the worst kind of meeting. Yeah, you're not selling it. (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, and like I promised, we, we'd be remiss not to have the obligatory Hamilton question, um, because evidently, uh, Hamilton is the only thing that people will reference to this time period anymore. What do what do you think the show did to influence our biases towards him? Do you think it's like made folks be more favorable towards him or less or even any of the characters i guess sure well it's definitely predisposed people to not really pay attention to john adams um i think that it certainly boosted his reputation i think it also boosted thomas jefferson's and it boosted aaron burr's um because it really brought new attention to some of these figures that generally get you know either footnoted or put in like one paragraph and then discarded I think one of the greatest things that it has done, actually, is just reintroduce people to the drama and the excitement of that time period. And one of the things that I'm always so impressed by is, you know, people will ask me what actually happened or what more can I read to know? So viewers understand that it's art. It's not intended to be history. It's Mm -hmm. beautiful, extraordinary art. And I'm a huge fan of it, but it's not intended to be 100% accurate. And I think if we assume that people think that it is, we're doing them a disservice, because I don't think that that's the case. However, I should say that since Hamilton died, 
there have been these periods of time where Hamilton's on the rise and Jefferson's on the fall and vice versa. And currently Jefferson is in sort of a low moment as we focus on race and slavery and sort of his natural hypocrisy there. But there have been these swings and they tend to sort of um, go opposite of one another. And that's actually a very natural part of American culture. And, you know, with the, you know, bias of recency bias, you know, with everything going on in this country right now and everything coming to a head and with different debates, I know, like at Statutory Hall that they, I believe they just made, the or they're talking about the decision to potentially ban um, certain statues and so forth. What's, what's your take on all that debate that's going on right now? Because like here in North Carolina, it's a... Obviously, it's a real hot topic. Hot topic, yeah. Um, So I think that there are a couple of things that we should always keep in mind. The first is, what is it that we're celebrating? So what Robert E. Lee is best known for was leading the Confederacy. So literally being a traitor to the nation. Right. Whereas... Yes, Jefferson owned enslaved people. He had the same sort of flaws that we would think of. But he isn't celebrated for trying to destroy the nation. He's celebrated for helping to found it. I think that's a pretty important distinction that people often gloss over. Second, I think it's really important to consider the context in which these statues and memorials are put up and what messages they are intended to convey. And we often don't have to do that much of a deep dive to understand that because often when the statues or the busts or the memorials are placed, there is a commemoration ceremony and they often give speeches about what the purpose of these things are, what sort of history they're trying to, I say history in quotes, um, they're trying to preserve. So, for example, a lot of the statues of Confederate leaders that have been put up, especially in places in the South, were put up between 1890 and 1920, which is many, 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 many years after the (laughs) end of the Confederacy. And often their commemoration ceremonies emphasize that it was important to preserve white supremacy. And I'm not putting words in their mouth. They're often quite blatant about this subject. So... For me, the big question is, what message is that conveying to the American people? And is that a message we really want to convey? Now, that's not to say that we should obscure this history. Of course, we should not. We have to continue to preserve history and teach history and the full story. But statues are not history. Statues are things that we put up to celebrate things. And is that something we really want to celebrate? The final piece I would say is that I think it is totally appropriate that as a nation, we consider every so often what it is we want to celebrate and what our values are and are those shifting. That is totally okay. So for example, in the founding era, I wouldn't have been allowed to wear pants. I like pants. I wear pants all the time. I have a PhD. I wouldn't have been able to do that in the founding era. Clearly, our values about women and education have evolved and changed And so the language and the type of commemoration we use for women should evolve and change. I think that that is appropriate and normal. And if society wasn't evolving in that way, I would think that would actually be a much bigger cause for concern. And so you said something that really touched on something for me around 
you know, giving the speech and commemorating or what have you, or explaining this memorial was um, like Gettysburg. I mean, who, if you've never been to, I mean, not you, but any of the listeners have never been to Gettysburg, it's such a powerful place. Do you think things like Gettysburg and um, I'm, I'm trying to think of some other uh, places should be left intact so we don't let, you know, recency bias or any other biases like get in the way of making sure we understand what we came from? Well, I definitely think that we have to preserve the places because place is essential oh, to yeah. understanding how a thing or an event or a time would have felt. You really, I think, like if you go into an old historic house, it gives you such a better sense of how people lived in a way that words simply cannot do because we are very visual creatures. Oh, Mount Vernon. So I, Absolutely. Oh, it's yeah. a great example. Great yeah. example. Um, and you can understand if you stand out on the back piazza and you look out when Washington said he really didn't want to leave, you can understand why he really didn't want to leave. Um, I mean, there's so many details that I think are, are so hard to comprehend unless we see and, them and experience them ourselves. And Monticello, I just wonder how he got up there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, horses and other forms of, um, I know it uh, just must've been not, labor, but yes, not, it was, <laughs> yeah, not, not fun. Um, sometimes actually visitors would get out and walk because they were so uncomfortable in the carriages, but I digress. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so when we think about these battlefields, I think that, um, the same sort of standards need to be applied. I don't think that we should ever obscure that there were two sides fighting. And I don't think that we should ever try and remove traces of that. But a lot of the early plaques and commemorations were put up around the same time. So they often say things like, well, you know, here die the loyal sons that fought in favor of states' rights. Well, that's not really what, I mean, yes, they were fighting for states' rights, but they were fighting for states' rights to keep slavery. And mm -hmm. often slavery won't even be mentioned and um, again, I think it's super helpful to go back to the historic figures and look at what they said. So one of my favorite exercises in the classroom, especially when I was teaching in Texas, was to look at the Texas secession bill. They're very explicit about why they are leaving. There is no wishy-washiness. <laughs> there are no ifs, ands, or buts in this Texas, topic. right? <laughs> yep. Um, so I think that what's really important with the preservation of these places is we have to look at when things were put up and how they what what is the message they are trying to convey so i have no problem with leaving statues and memorials on battlefields but i think it's really important that we make sure that the language that is being used to interpret and convey these things is accurately reflecting what happened when these events actually took place, as opposed to what people would like us to think took place, say, in 1905. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, isn't there a push to at Gettysburg to have like a alternate plaque or something put up or that that tells exactly what you're saying? Yeah, there's there's some ongoing conversations about it. And, you know, it is hard because a lot of these things were, as I mentioned, put up between like 1890 and 1920 when it was in the nation's best interest or people thought so at the time to sort of paper over the differences. And 
interpret fighting Southerners as sort of loyal Americans that just had a different viewpoint about the Constitution. And I don't think that that's a story we really want to tell today. And so what the best way to tell that story is, I think, is up for debate. Some people are in favor of an additional plaque. Some people are in favor of removing the original plaque and putting up a new one. I think that that, you know, I think there's probably a a correct answer for different circumstances, depending on what it is. But yes, it's very much under under consideration. And are are you afraid that the advent of AI starts to, you know, um, imply people's biases to take away the true, you know, uh, history of either side? Um, Yes, because, well, my concern with AI is that a human created it. So inherently, there's going to be human bias built into that system. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that... Sorry. That's okay. Well, what's in, um, your dog's name again? Just because everyone will. Right. Rolls, so, but. yes. So, the barking downstairs <laughs> is my American foxhound named John Quincy Dog Adams, Quincy for short. He is downstairs with a door closed. So, in the event that anyone wants to know how loud hounds are, that is um, your answer. Um, but uh, I totally forgot what I was saying. Oh, so um, AI, human bias. So a human had to create it. A human had to code it. And mm-hmm. code is not neutral. If you ask any you know computer scientist, they will tell you that it's a choice about how to code things. Now, I don't totally know all of that because I'm very intentionally a historian and not a computer scientist. <laughs> but I just know that it's something that we really have to be aware of. And AI can be an incredible useful tool to provide access to people who don't necessarily have the ability to get to the actual place. But I'm a big believer that absolutely nothing can replace walking up the hills at Gettysburg. Otherwise, you won't fully experience and ideally you do it in the summer when it's really hot. So you get the full experience of what that was like. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And finally, what is the one thing out of Washington's cabinet that you feel like people really miss. This is like asking like Bruce Springsteen like his favorite <laughs> song. Really, really good question. <laughs> um, can I cheat and say two things? Sure, we we, we we're not stringent. Thank you here. for allowing me to cheat. <laughs> um, so the the big thing I think that I would say is that so often people think that the cabinet and the executive branch was very clearly defined when Washington came into office. And I would encourage everyone who thinks that to go look at Article 2 of the Constitution and see how short it is and how uh, Quincy is now punching my door because now he wants to be let in on the conversation. So I apologize <laughs> to the, all listeners if you hear that as well. He's That's okay. Those of us who have dogs, it's like, you know standard procedures while well, I have kids over my head doing jumping jacks. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I would encourage everyone to look at Article 2 and see how short it is and see how little is written down. And so the most amazing thing about Washington's presidency was that he had to take those very few words and create something and create a structure of the executive branch and the institution of the presidency and fill out all of those fuzzy details. And that was a huge undertaking. And it is not hyperbole to say that he very firmly believed that one misstep would destroy the nation because the Republic was already on its second chance. 
the Confederation had already failed, and most countries don't get a second chance to get it right. So I think that's a, a really huge takeaway, is just to think about how much was created organically in response to real-time challenges while he was governing. The second piece I would say is when we look at Washington's leadership, because of the letters that you know Martha burned and sort of his very intentional efforts to craft a, an image and a legacy, we think, tend to think of him as this marble bust, that he was this boring, perfect person. He had a ridiculous temper. He also had a sense of humor. He could be mean, and but he could also be really nice and loyal. And he had, you know, a very thin skin and hated when people criticized him. And But he was also a brilliant leader. And his leadership strength was that he knew what his weaknesses were. And he knew what he didn't know. And he wasn't afraid to surround himself with people who knew things that he didn't. Because he knew it wouldn't make him look weak. It would make him better. And so I think that you cannot appreciate that leadership strength if you don't appreciate his weaknesses, because he was very aware of them. And so that's what I would say the biggest sort of cabinet takeaway is. That's awesome. That's so, so good. Because Washington is, I watched one of your prior podcasts, and I did not realize that your book is only the second one ever written about the Washington cabinet, which is amazing. So Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky, the author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of the American Institution, also the Imperfect Union newsletter. Make sure to sign up for that. It's awesome stuff. Thank you so much for stopping by and celebrating America's 245th birthday. Hopefully we have many more to come. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you to everyone for listening and hope you all have a happy 4th of July. Thanks for joining us today. To continue the conversation, visit us at our blog, financial-recon.com. Appearances do not constitute endorsement of flagship wealth management group, LPL Financial, or any other entity discussed in this program. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. This information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax or legal advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific situation with a qualified tax or legal advisor. Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky is not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Flagship Wealth Management Group.